<laughs> ah, the subject of encouragement. And you remember that encouragement is a huge, huge subject in the New Testament. We are called to be ambassadors and, and, uh, and conduits of encouragement to one another. Encourage one another is the command of Scripture. And so that's kind of what we want to do. Uh, we want to talk about uh, how to establish an encouraging spirit. And we're going to use a man in the New Testament by the name of Barnabas to uh, to give us some lessons on how to establish that encouraging spirit. As we said yesterday, we know that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and um, we know that uh, part of God's nature, part of who he is, intrinsic within his very nature, is this idea of encouragement. He is called the God of all comfort. And uh, so, but we know that we have this uh, old nature, this incarceration of this unredeemed flesh, and so we've got to establish this in our life. We've got to be intentional. So that's what we want to talk about. How do we do that? And we're going to learn from Barnabas's life how we establish an encouraging spirit. Go with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, because that's where we're introduced to him. Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, and I'm going to get you to help me a little bit this morning because we want to talk about this man, and I want you to look at verse 36 only for a minute, and I want you to give me uh, a number of things that are mentioned about Barnabas in verse 36. Now, don't go to verse 37 yet, just verse 36. So what do we, what do we know about Barnabas from what the scriptures tell us? Just, uh, just, just speak it out. Okay, he is a Levite, okay, so we know. Uh, that he is Jewish, he comes from the priestly line of the Levites, okay, so that's what we know about him. What else? What's that? Ah, yes, his birth name is Joseph. His, he was given the surname of what? Barnabas, right? We're told that in the scriptures by the apostles because he was known as a son of encouragement. What else do we know about him? Ah, yes. How many of us would think that that's an important issue? Uh, many times we'd read over that and we'd think nothing much of that, but that is so significant, and I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Well, we might not get there till tomorrow, but uh, we'll see what happens. So we know these four things about him from that text. Number one, he was given the name Joseph. We know that he was from the priestly line of the Levites. We know that his home was on Cyprus, the third largest uh, island in the Mediterranean, and we know that he was a close associate with the apostles who gave him the title Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so we know that he was known primarily as a son of encouragement. Now, we know that names in Scripture define nature. We know that many times in the, in the Bible days that children weren't named until sometimes many days after their birth. And it usually was, uh, they were named surrounding, uh, uh, they were named um, in line with some event or uh, some circumstance that centered around their birth. And so we know with uh, Jacob and Esau, when Esau was being born, Jacob reached out, grabbed his heel. And uh, so we know that he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber or supplanter. And that really defined Jacob's nature through most of his life. And so uh, he, this guy was known as a son of encouragement. That's why he was given the name, uh, the surname Barnabas. Um, and then the fifth thing we're, we were told about him is in verse 37, that he had a track of land. So we know he had some means. He was somewhat wealthy. He had a track of land, and he sold that land, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, why does 
uh, Luke end with this key point because he's going to use it as a means of contrast because we're going to come into chapter 5 and we're going to meet another couple who did the very same thing. They had a track of land, they sold it and they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, but... They uh, had lied to the Holy Spirit because they had said that they brought it all when in fact they did not do it. Uh, I like what one preacher said. He said if God operated that way today in the New Testament or or in the church today, that there'd be a morgue in the basement of every church, right? Uh, So uh, we're glad that as a dispensation moves on, God God that deals in mercy, right? So, but, uh, we're, so he's going to use this as a contrast. Now, we know that this was not some ancient form of communism because when Peter deals with Ananias and Sapphira, he says to them very plainly, while it was in your possession, was it not yours to do with as you would? So we know that they were not forced to do this. This came willingly. This was voluntary. Uh, on the part of those who did it. We remember that when the church was established, there was tremendous persecution. Many of those believers were poor. Uh, They did not have any means. And so those who had means sold what they had in order to provide uh, for those who uh, were suffering. And so these are the things that we know right away from the life of Barnabas. Now, we're going to look at then, how do we establish an encouraging spirit? Well, number one... Uh, This is where we want to come to. Number one is an encouraging spirit insists on spiritual intimacy and a right relationship to the Spirit of God. It insists on spiritual intimacy and a right relationship to the Spirit of God. We know that uh, when we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. We know that with him, we've already said, 2 Peter 1, 4, comes the divine nature of God. Part of the nature of God is encouragement. And so we know that encouragement is a byproduct or a fruit of our abiding in Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, an important passage of scripture, one of the I am statements of Jesus, when he said, I am the vine and my father is the husbandman. And then he goes on to talk about him being the vine and us being the branches. And he says this, that a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. Now, I grew, up in, <clears throat> I grew up in southern Ontario. It is probably one of the places in the world that produces some of the best wine in the world. It comes out of our area, particularly known for its ice wines. And uh, so we get a lot, of, um, a lot of vine dressers, a lot of farmers who grow grapes. And um, when I was discussing uh, this passage with one of them, he said, you know, if you take a branch and you clip it from a grapevine and put it in water, it will root, but it'll never produce fruit. And it won't produce fruit because you have severed it from the source of fruit bearing. And so everybody in that culture would have understood that the source of spiritual fruit is found in abiding in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the first 11 verses of John chapter 15, the word abide is found 11 times. So we know, according to the law of repeated mention, that that is the main emphasis of the text. If we are going to love as we should, if we are going to be gentle as we should, if we are going to be merciful as we should, we've got to be abiding in the vine. It is not something that you and I try to generate on our own. We are merely to work in cooperation with the Spirit of God, and our part is just is just abiding, remaining in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's why when the lawyer came to Christ in Matthew chapter 22 and said, verse 37, Master, what is the greatest law? 
in the command. In the, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And Jesus said, here it is, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That comes right from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the Shema of the Old Testament, which literally means to hear it was the Jewish uh, 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 creed of faith. And uh, they repeated it at least three times a day. And so Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. Now, folks, listen very carefully. If we would focus on just doing that, that's all God desires of us, that we love him, and it becomes the wellspring out of which everything else flows. So we know if our life is not producing the fruit that is consistent with the Spirit's indwelling, it should be an immediate a revelation to us that there is something wrong between me and the Spirit of God. If I'm holding a grudge against somebody else, it is an immediate awareness. It ought to be that there is something wrong in my relationship with Christ. Why? Because I cannot say I love God and hate my brother, right? So it becomes the wellspring out of which everything else flows. And so we know if the Spirit is known as the Comforter, and we know that from John 14 and 15, He is the one who has come to abide within us to provide strength and encouragement for us during times of trial, during times of difficult circumstance. Then we know that as we abide in Christ, that the Spirit will enable us to be encouragers of other people who are going through those same things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about that. God allows us to go through trial that we might experience his comfort, remember that? So that we in turn might comfort others who are going through times of affliction with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted. And so we know that uh, it insists on spiritual intimacy and a right relationship with the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 24, look at what's said of Barnabas, that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now notice here, he was a man who was full of faith and filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, That little word filled literally means this, to be controlled by. It's to be brought under the influence of someone or something else. And so Barnabas' life was controlled by the Spirit of God And so it's no wonder that he was one who was known for encouragement. And by the way, when you become an encourager, you encourage other people to do the same. That it's never, it's never isolated to you, okay? And so he was a good man here, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Let's look at the second thing here, that an encouraging spirit involves seeing my possessions as a means of bringing blessing to others. So if I'm going to establish this encouraging spirit, here's what it does. It involves seeing my possessions as a means of bringing blessing to others. Why? Because encouragement so many times in the New Testament takes on a tangible form, okay? You're going to encourage people by coming alongside them in a tangible way and meeting a need. That is what encouragement is all about. Remember I said that most of the verses in the New Testament, if we were to look at all of the verses on encouragement, they fall under three main headings. The majority of verses in the New Testament fall under the encouragement of the saints. Why? Because you and I, as much as, much as we receive encouragement from God, we need encouragement with flesh on. 
right? We need somebody who's tangible, somebody who'll come put an arm around us and uh, pray for us and maybe provide for us during a time of need in our own life. That is the way we encourage. And so uh, encouragement, if we're going to establish it, I have got to recognize that my possessions have been given to me by God for the primary means particularly excess, of being a blessing to others. Notice Barnabas did not hoard his possessions. He did not spend them merely on his own fleshly pursuits, but rather he held them loosely and was willing to release them to be used of God. By the way, who is the rightful owner anyways of all we possess? I think so many times um, we get this idea of even in our tithing, and I've heard people say this, well, you know, I give God his 10% and then I have the 90%. Listen very carefully. How much of my resources belong to God? A hundred percent of them. Why do we give off the top? We give off the top as a recognition that it all belongs to God. And as I give him the first fruits of what I have, then what I do, it reminds me that I'm accountable to God, not only for what I give him, but for what he gives me to use and to administer as God would see fit. And so I need to recognize that all that I possess, he is the rightful owner of it. And so I need to hold it very loosely. You know, Jesus made a statement like this. He said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you would lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you'll find it. What was he saying? He was saying this, real life is found not in man's attempt to kind of hold on to it, but in his ability to release it and let it go and and, and allow God to use his life in whatever way God would deem fit. And so here it is. I remember, I remember what became one of the most liberating days for me. When I took a walk, and I often do, and I spend time communing with the Lord, and uh, I remember um, I was going through a little bit of a difficult time in ministry, and I remember lifting my hands to God and holding them open and saying, God, I want, for the first time, I want to release to you everything that I have and am. And I remember the liberating feeling that came over me when I realized that, you know what, I am not responsible to try and claw and grasp and hang on to. God himself is the very source of my life. And so what I need to do is I need to release it to God and allow him to do with me what he would will. And it's very, very liberating when we do that. So let me just say this. Please understand that What you have been given has been given to you by God as a stewardship, and God will hold you responsible for that. But the greatest lesson we need to learn is to to hold on to it lightly. Really, hold on to it lightly. Too many of God's servants become so saddled down with possessions and things that they're not freed up to do and go wherever God wants them to go. I remember coming to the last church I was in, and I was only there a couple of months, and a lady came up to me and said, Pastor, how long are you staying? Now, I could take that one of two ways, and I understand that. She could be saying, how long are you staying, meaning we wish you would go. 
Uh, or she could be saying, how long are you staying knowing that? I was the 39th pastor in that church. And out of those 39 pastors, uh, probably four of them stayed longer than seven years. So she was really saying to me, are you going to stay longer than what has been the norm? Uh, my answer has always been the same. I will stay as long as God has me here. And I even say that about this ministry. My wife and I are committed to doing this as long as God has us here. But if he would direct us elsewhere, we would be going. We're going through one of the most difficult times in our life. My wife, for the first time, she's been through a six-year battle with cancer, but for the first time I've seen her faith waver. And it's wavered because this is an entirely new lifestyle for us. We are selling our home That is the center of her security. We have three of her four kids around us. We have two grandchildren who are there. And for the first time, she has been challenged to release that part of her life to God. And I remember I was in Parkside speaking on this tour, and she emailed me and she said, I am so discouraged She said, I just need God to give me a hug. And that was on a Saturday. And Sunday night, she emailed me back and said, today, the message, the scripture, everything God had said to me met every need that I had. And you know what? Now God has renewed my strength. He has fortified my faith, and I'm ready to take the next step. I am so thankful for a wife like that. John, you know. Dave, you know. We could never do. Keith, you know. We could never do what God has called us to do if there was not a faithful bride standing behind us, encouraging us, and sometimes giving us a little kick when we need it, right? I remember coming home complaining one time about what was going on in the church. And uh, if you know anything about my wife, she's very quiet, doesn't say a whole lot, but when she does speak, it holds weight, right? And so I'm complaining to her about things, and she just turns to me and she says, Terry, whose kingdom are you building, yours or God's? Boy, did I get mad. (laughs) If you really want to know a true evaluation of your sermon, guys, when you get married, ask your wife. She'll give you a a true evaluation of your sermon. Right, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, so we know that if this encouraging spirit is going to be established... I have got to be abiding in Christ. It has got to be a, 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 a close, intimate walk with Jesus Christ. That's what it needs to be. Number two, it needs to involve the seeing of my possessions as a means of bringing blessing to others. Why? Because there's going to come a time when God is going to call you to release what you have. And it's not going to be easy. And we're going to have to let it go. I, uh, I ride motorcycle. I have a, a beautiful 1300 uh, Yamaha Venture Royal Star. It's a, it's a cruising bike, and my wife and I love to, to go. We went on a 3,000-kilometer journey just a couple of years ago up through the Blue Mountains. We enjoy riding. And uh, that, that thing was really a little bit of an idol to me, I, I have to admit. And... Um, and uh, I, I would release anything but that, you know. But I want you to know where God's brought me. I said to my wife, come in here. I said, this will be the summer. That'll be a test because if I don't get to ride it much, it's not financially, it's not fiscally responsible for me to hang on to that. So I'm going to release it. I'm going to release it. And let me tell you, two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I wanted to hang on to that. But you know, God brings us to the place where he 
through his encouragement, helps us to see the best thing we can do is release it. Because God is not into taking, he's into giving. And so whatever I, whatever I release, I can understand that the result of that is only going to be multiplied blessing. Because that's what God has in store for us. Well, let me give you the third one, and this one we'll finish with. Oh, by the way, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 talks about giving, right? And it says God loves a cheerful giver. Hilaros is the, is the word there for cheerful. We get our word hilarity from it. Wouldn't it be great in a, in a church service if when the offering came out, the whole place just broke out in spontaneous laughter, you know? Uh, that's usually not what happens. Uh, I remember I was just in a church, um, and they had the kids take up the Sunday school offering, you know? And I'm sitting there as the speaker, and... Uh, and uh, I, I realize that my wallet is up in the, uh, in the suitcase. And, you know, there's something about kids when they take up the offering. Like an adult will walk by and you'll see you'll have nothing and he'll... The kid just stood there with the <laughs> offering plate, you know. And uh, I could hear uh, people in back of me laughing because this kid just like, you know, type thing. But you know what? Listen, when I understand that that belongs to God, then I can give it cheerfully. Why? Because I know that God will use that for the advance of his kingdom. And if God would desire that he would use my resources to do that, then I'm glad to release them to him to be used in whatever, uh, whatever capacity he would deem. I pray for my wife because we, uh, we go back. Uh, the house is on the market. We go back uh, from here I fly to Virginia, I have four days of meetings there, and then come back and we pick up our fifth wheel, and we are going to be living in a trailer for the entire summer. And uh, Now, it's not going to be too hard. Um, it's a nice trailer and stuff, but it'll just be a change of lifestyle. So if you would remember to pray for us, we would certainly, certainly uh, welcome that. Uh, here's one. Now, we're not going to probably get through this all, but... Uh, Establishing an encouraging spirit includes capitalizing on people's future potential rather than focusing on their past failures. <laughs> um, chapter 9 of the book of Acts gives us the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus, you know, letters from the, from the Sanhedrin to bring back to Jerusalem believers um, in order to be imprisoned um, ultimately the sentence of death. We know that the Jews were not allowed to. They were given permission by Rome to administer their own justice, but they could not put somebody to death. They needed the permission of Rome to do that. But they were going to bring them back imprisoned and hopefully have the permission by Rome to crucify them and to put them to death by stoning or whatever other means they saw fit. Saul is on his way. He's smitten on the road to Damascus by a bright light. And his life is transformed. He's blinded. He goes into Damascus, meets a, pro- uh, a prophet by the name of Ananias, stays there with him. And Saul receives his sight and he goes back to Jerusalem because he wants to come in amongst the company of believers. Now, here's a problem Paul is coming back. Nobody knows about Paul's conversion. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and he's looking to find entrance among the believers, and guess what? Nobody trusted him. 
In fact, they all thought, they all thought it's a conspiracy. He is pretending to be one of us so that he can infiltrate our ranks and bring us captive. That's what they're thinking. And Saul, listen, Saul would have never had an entrance had it not been for Barnabas. Because we're told that Barnabas comes onto the scene and he finds Paul and he brings Paul in amongst the other believers in Jerusalem and introduces them to Paul. And if it was not for Barnabas willing to take a risk with the Apostle Paul, he may never have found entrance amongst those believers in Jerusalem. Now listen very carefully, folks. You and I are going to come across a lot of people who, by their very lifestyle, by their very past, will be thinking to themselves, listen, I wonder what God could do with my life. I wonder if God could ever use me. Listen, there is no one disqualified like that from being used by God. In fact, God has a wonderful way of taking train wrecks and making something out of them, right? We know that the, 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 uh, the church is dotted with individuals whose lives were a mess, and God enters into the picture, and they are forever transformed, and God is marvelously using them. I remember preaching one youth meeting, and... Uh, there was a young fellow who came in 15 years of age. God had really dealt with him. Uh, I had said after the meeting was over at 9, if there were any young people who wanted to, to meet and counsel with me, I was available. It was 1 o'clock in the morning before I was done. There was, this was the last guy. I remember him coming in and sharing with me that at 12 years of age, he was introduced to drugs and alcohol. And at 15 years of age, he, was, uh, he had been addicted to substance abuse. And I remember him saying, as he was going through treatments and so on for that, I remember him saying, what could God possibly do with my life? And I remember saying to him, you know what, God has a wonderful way of taking even sin in your past and using it ultimately to glorify him. Because that young man is going to have an entrance among people that I would never have. Because he can identify with the one who is struggling with substance abuse. I have never in my life, I got drunk once, and that was by accident. I was invited to a friend at a sleepover. His wife, his, his sister had, a, had, a, had, a, had a, a, a wedding party, a pre-wedding party. What do you call those things? I don't know. But they had this, they, they had this punch. Little did I know it was spiked. I woke up the next morning with the worst headache. And that's the only time. But I'll tell you something, I've never known what it is to be addicted to a substance. But there are a lot of people whom God has rescued from that who do. And so you know what they're able to do? Come alongside the one who has a substance abuse. Now, I'm not saying you do. (laughs) But the secret's out, right? To come alongside and be able to minister at a level that I could never minister. Because he understands That's the point. So you've got to focus on people's future potential rather than on their past failures. And we're going to stop there. We're going to pick it up there tomorrow. Because the the, the fact is, Paul forgot about that. (laughs) And we're going to find out how he really blows it. You know, we think about the Apostle Paul, you know, being this great giant of the faith. Do you know what? He was a man of flesh. Just like you and I. 
The best of men are only men at their best, right? So uh, we're going to find out that Paul forgets this. And he, he, he turns to another young man by the name of John Mark who failed. And Paul, rather than incur- being an encourager, disqualifies John Mark and Barnabas enters the scene. We're going we're to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. So he, here's the third thing, and then we'll, we'll finish it up tomorrow because I think I'm here for chapel tomorrow as well. So we'll deal with this one and the next two as we finish up. Okay? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you again this morning for your word. Uh, Lord, it is so full of lessons for us. We learned yesterday that um, the scriptures have been given for our instruction, uh, that by means of perseverance, by means of encouragement, we might find hope. And Lord, we thank you for your word. It is is such a vital, vital um, necessity in our life. We thank you for the lessons we can learn about this. Thank you for what you've taught me. Lord, every time I share these principles, I just think that, God, you're still working in this heart. But I thank you that when we come to God with a desire to not only listen but obey, that the Holy Spirit has availed the tools he needs to shape us and make us more and more to the image of your Son. And I thank you that you are our greatest encourager. Help us to participate with you in that responsibility of encouraging others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.